We do appreciate your commitment to the meetings, especially you who have been at Yosemite all week. It's a refreshing time, but it's a, um, it's a wearying time as well, so thanks. Let's um, look at 2 Corinthians 5 for just a very brief uh, look back at uh, a couple weeks ago. Luke, um, Luke was uh, preaching this section and he covered this verse 15. He died, that is the Lord Jesus, died for all that those who live should no longer uh, should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. How are we to relate to unbelievers now as we live for him who died for us and rose again? Paul addresses this in this chapter, in this uh, portion of the chapter, and if I could summarize very briefly, he says, be separate be separate. So we'll look at um, 2 Corinthians 6, um, starting at verse 11, but let's um, commit our time again to the Lord. Lord, um, as we prayed already, illumine the pages of your scripture, uh, enlighten us as to your plan, your desire for us in our dealings with our unbelieving friends, and um, uh, give us application, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul begins his, um, this portion, um, 6, 11. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our, our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of God, of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul in verse 11 is not bashful or reserved about expressing his affection for the Corinthians. He says, we have spoken openly to you. I've openly uh, expressed my affection to you. I love you. Other expressions in his writing to the Corinthians, he closed the first letter that we studied, he said, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. In this letter, he's already written, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you 
with many tears. Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Paul loved the Corinthians. You are in our hearts to die together and to live together, he tells them in verse in uh, chapter 7. Because I do not love you, God knows. I do not seek what is yours, but you. And also in this letter, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. There is something to look forward to in, the, um, in our study in the chapters ahead. Paul um, pouring out his love for these Corinthians. Paul's heart was wide open. He was ready to receive them in love. The fullness of Paul's love was not returned. The Corinthians' affection was limited. In the original, it's um, literally narrow-spaced. Their Corinthian hearts were quite shriveled. Though Paul was the spiritual father to many, yet the Corinthians restrained themselves. Perhaps they loved their pompous, oppressive, legalistic teachers more than they loved their spiritual father. But Paul had a stubborn love for a stubborn people. He asked them in verse 13, he says, Now in return for the same, you also be open. I pray that none of you fathers here this morning have experienced the um, pain of children's arrogance and disloyalty. Paul needed these Corinthians to be receptive because he had another important exhortation for them from the Lord. And so he asks for their full attention. He wants their hearts. So what is this exhortation? Verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Show us our slide, first slide, Luke. Unequally yoked means to be yoked with one of another kind. In Deuteronomy, the Lord says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Why not? They look quite agreeable here. Uh, we got them photoed together, right? If you look very closely, if you study this picture for a while, you'll see that the donkey was photoshopped into the photograph. Yeah. Um, we, um, we don't plow with unequal animals. Bill McDonald says in his commentary, the ox was, an, was a clean animal and the donkey was unclean and their step and pull are unequal. Thank you, Luke. Is it oxen that God is concerned about? Two animals in a yoke face the same direction. They go at the same pace. They're expected to pull equally. In partnership with an unbeliever, I will be tempted to compromise my convictions and to conform to the partner's thinking for the sake of unity. 
We'll um, look at some applications of this in a few minutes. But Paul lists reasons for not being yoked together, bound together with an unbeliever. There is an incongruity, there's an absurdity of alliances with unbelievers. And uh, let's look first at some of the terms that Paul uses in verse, verses 14 through 16. He says, fellowship, communion, accord, part, agreement. Fellowship is a partnership. It's a sharing together. It's a partaking with someone. Communion, the original is koinonia. It means to, uh, to possess things in common. The word here for accord is the one that we get our word symphony from. It's a sounding together, literally. Part, we could um, define as a portion. And uh, Paul's use of the word agreement literally means to put down or to lay down together, to consent to. So um, these, are, um, these are terms Paul uses, and uh, we have so many terms for fellowship in the original and in English. So what are these five illustrations of incompatibility of believers and unbelievers? Paul is, uh, is very graphic. He begins with righteousness and lawless, lawlessness. What agreement is there in these? The world and its religions stress similarities with the Lord Jesus. Christ stresses differences. The world is churchy and the church is worldly. A neighbor sent me a link to a video with a woman telling about all the similarities between Jesus and Muhammad. And I forget how long it was. It, it, it seemed longer than it probably was. But in the end, the most significant similarity that she could point to was that both Jesus and Muhammad had beards. Okay? They're, um, the similarities are very superficial. Paul next talks about light with darkness. In the beginning, God created light. And in Genesis 1-4, it says that he divided the light from the darkness. And so they have remained. Where there is light, there is no darkness. Where there is true darkness, there is no light. The absurdity of a relationship between Christ and Belial what is Belial? Originally, Belial meant worthless or hopeless, extremely wicked, uh, and destruction, and it came to be appropriately a name for Satan. What accord has um, Christ with Belial? The demons themselves said, what do we have to do with you, Jesus, Son of God? We don't have dealings with you. Get away from us. There, listen to their testimony. We have a powerful illustration of this in 
1 Samuel 5. The Philistines had captured the Ark of God. The people of Ashdod put the Ark, they thought appropriately, in the house of their god, Dagon. In the morning, the people of Ashdod trotted up to their um, temple, and behold, Dagon had fallen face down in front of the ark. No problem. Lift Dagon back up. He can't get up by himself. We have to lift him up, reset him on his pedestal, and uh, we're off and running. The next morning, they arose, and not only had Dagon fallen this time, but his head was broken off and his hands were broken off in front of the ark. So the priests of Dagon abandoned their temple. Show us a slide here, Luke. Here's um, an artist's depiction of what it may have looked like as um, Dagon uh, fell before the ark. Next slide. Why we can't coexist. Because um, the Lord will not share his honor with, uh, with an idol, with any other gods. We see this, um, we see this bumper sticker uh, on people's cars, pray for these people because they don't understand the, uh, the holiness of God, the um, infiniteness of God, and the futility of other gods, so-called. Uh, third slide, Luke. Why we cannot coexist is because the Lord is holy. He says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. Impossible. I'm not going to do it. The very thought of coexistence implies equality between Jehovah God and these other gods, Buddha and Allah, and ultimately with Belial. Jehovah God will not stoop to such profanity and dishonor. Of Christ, we read, such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Let's look at these, um, these individual terms from Hebrews 7.26. Holy, Jesus is righteous. He's true to his character, always doing what is proper and is right. He's harmless, meaning he's innocent. He is void of evil. Jesus is undefiled, that is, he's immaculate, he's free from contamination. He's separate from sinners, meaning that he is altogether other. Separate can mean two things. It can mean that, it, uh, that a, a thing or a person is uh, disconnected, that is, it was once united, it was once joined, now it's separate, separated. There is another thought in that definition, 
of one who was never connected, one who was never joined together. He is separate. And the Lord Jesus had never a connection with evil. He was disconnect, he was unconnected from that. And then he's higher than the heavens, that is, exalted, clothed with honor and majesty. So our question this morning is, how can Jesus be separate from sinners and yet live among sinners, as the gospel writers recorded? Matthew 9.10, Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. The table at which Jesus sat was a dining table, and he ate with tax collectors and sinners. Even more startling than that, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, our previous chapter, we read that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that is, to become a sin offering for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How can that be? How can this be? One so infinitely separate from sin should eat with uh, those who had so grievously offended his sensibility, his law. Jesus remained separate from sin even as he became God's sin offering. He had contact with sin's penalty, but not with the defilement of sin. In Isaiah 53, we read, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So how can one so holy be with those who are so unholy? Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came seeking for you, to rescue you, to pay the penalty for your sin, to save you, to win you to himself. Altering the words of our second hymn this morning slightly, can you say, oh, what a savior is Jesus, the Lord. Well, may his name by the saints be adored. He has redeemed me from hell by his blood, saved me forever and brought me to God. Have you, by a definite act of faith, come to rely on the Lord Jesus for the salvation of your soul? That is our desire this morning. That is infinitely more the Lord's desire that you uh, come to him, that you surrender to him, that you uh, receive him as your Lord and Savior. Third um, relationship here 
is the believer with an unbeliever. Some say you can't know that you're saved until you die. But Paul um, presupposes, he, uh, he assumes that uh, in giving this instruction that you have to know who the believers are. If we're, if we're not to fellowship with unbelievers, who are they? We need to discern that. And so there, there are definite, um, we can definitely know who are believers and who are not. Let's look at several applications of this truth. Uh, the first one we, we hear a lot about is marriage, is uh, courtship, and um, that an unbelieving man or woman should not um, uh, fellowship with a believing um, woman or man. I saw... Um, I saw um, a photo on, uh, on the internet I wanted to share with you, but um, basically it was uh, an artist's rendition of uh, a man and a woman, they're holding hands, and he's got their hearts um, in, inside, their hearts showing, and in the, uh, in the woman, her, her heart has a cross on it. And in the man, there's no, there's no cross. And they're kind, of, uh, they're kind of looking apart from each other. And uh, I thought, wow. In the heart of one, Christ reigns. He's the manager. He's the Lord. He's the, um, the one who guides and directs. And in the heart of the other, uh, the Lord does not reign. He's not welcome there. So how, how can people, uh, how could a believer date an unbeliever, court an unbeliever, and intend to marry an unbeliever. There are areas of potential and um, probable, inevitable conflict, like finances. Where does our disposable income go? Well, the unbeliever says, it's not going to missions. That's a waste of, uh, that's a waste of money. Um, where, where does our disposable income go? Child raising, how are we going to raise our kids? Well, we need to uh, raise them in the fear of the Lord, uh, says the believer, and uh, make sure they have a good foundation for their, uh, for their lives. The unbeliever says, no. Uh, what about the standard of living? Um, are we going to live uh, in opulence? Are we going to live in luxury? Or are we going to live practically? These are all uh, issues, areas of um, conflict that enter into um, to a relationship of saved and unsaved. In business, uh, we've already mentioned that there's a tremendous pressure. If, uh, if I'm a partner in a business, equal partner, I'm, a, I'm under tremendous pressure to compromise my convictions to keep the business focused, to keep it alive. In social life, we shouldn't engage in the world's sinful pleasures thinking that we will win people to Christ. The unbeliever will think instead that there is no difference between you and me. You as an ambassador for Christ, an ambassador for, of reconciliation will have lost your credibility, your, your leverage to 
to talk to that person about the Lord Jesus. And we'll see a kind of holy disconnectedness in the life of Daniel here shortly. But a fourth area of um, application is church life. What if I'm part of a, an assembly that um, was for, very, for many years sound in its teaching and practice, but uh, through the years, new people have come in and they've, um, they've become very loose, um, very liberal in their theology. They deny the, um, the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of the word. Um, they're accepting unbelievers into, uh, into fellowship. What am I to do? Leave. Leave. We must be willing to sacrifice long-standing friendships and associations to avoid the unequal yoke. We don't want to be a part of a testimony that's actually tearing down the, um, the church. There's a, um, there's a fifth comparison that Paul makes, and he talks about the temple of God with idols. That's, um, that's an impossible relationship. Manasseh tried it. The name Manasseh should chill the, um, uh, the blood of any believer because he had such privilege. Manasseh was, um, uh, was a man of privilege, and yet he, uh, he disobeyed the Lord in ways that, uh, that no one had before him. Manasseh built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Manasseh tried it. And the Lord's response was uh, to show how uh, hateful that was. On Manasseh's part, he despised the Lord. He disdained the uh, uh, God Jehovah. And, uh, and God showed his hatred of that evil that Manasseh did. So these, um, these make up a reason for not being joined to unbelievers, this comparison of um, impossible um, partners. There's a second reason for not being joined to unbelievers, and uh, Paul uh, writes about the high calling of the Corinthian assembly. He says, you are the temple of the living God. I love that, living God. Um, in contrast to dead idols, idols of wood and stone that uh, can't even stand up on their own. We are the temple of the living God. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul had written, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? He may have been addressing individuals at that point. Paul here seems to be addressing the assembly 
the assembly of Corinthian believers was a temple of the living God. What a privilege. What a responsibility. This promise comes from Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, given to the nation of Israel. The blessing God offers was conditioned on Israel's obedience. God told Israel to walk in my statutes, keep my commandments. God gave these commandments for the welfare of his creatures. We prosper when we keep them. But in keeping them, God piles on additional blessings. Listen, I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. God reveals his heart, his longings through his commandments. This is what he desires. He wants to set his tabernacle among these people. His, he wants his soul not to abhor them. He wants to walk among them. He wants to be their God. He wants them to be his people. God says, in effect, O Israel, I have spoken openly to you. My heart is wide open. You are not restricted by me, but you are restricted by your own affections. He longed to walk with Israel. He desired to walk with the Corinthians, and he desires to walk with the saints of Calvary Bible Chapel today. How exciting to think of the Lord Jesus walking among his saints here. What does he see? How does he superintend even the smallest details of our activities in our worship, in our fellowship, in our prayer, in our teaching? The apostle continues along this thought in the verses that follow. The next section deals with um, the blessings of separation. God receives as children those who separate themselves from the world. In verse 17, we have um, this promise quoted from Isaiah 52:11, which says, "Depart." Depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Isaiah urged the exiles in Babylon to leave behind the pollutions of the land of their captivity, especially those Levites who bore the um, vessels of the temple. Be separate, says the Lord. By way of application, let's look uh, briefly at the life of Daniel. In Daniel 5.13, we, um, we find the statement that Daniel was brought in before the king. The occasion was there was a feast for a thousand of Belshazzar's lords. Wine flowed freely. Participants praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Perhaps they were all lined up right there, either side of the auditorium. And uh, the, um, they gave toast to Murdoch and praised the, uh, 
um, the god Baal. But not the god who held Belshazzar's breath in his hand. They didn't praise him. He was not represented. Where was Daniel? Daniel was one of the three governors of the land. Shouldn't he have been there among the, um, the lords of Belshazzar? Well, apparently he wasn't invited. And if he was invited, he didn't accept. The king had to send for Daniel to explain the, um, the handwriting on the wall. Daniel had separated himself. He distanced himself from the idolatrous practitioners of Babylon, perhaps in the same spirit in which he began years before. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. That seemed to be his, his watchword. He didn't attend their parties. As one who is invited occasionally to unbelievers, retirement parties and birthday parties and other social events, I offer the following diagnostic question. When the host invites you to a party and you have a question in your mind about what's going to go on at the party, uh, ask, ask your host, is drinking going to be a major part of the event? Usually uh, the host will say, no, you know, uh, we're serving beer and wine. You're welcome to, to partake or not. Others say, um, oh yeah, we're doing shots about halfway through and chasers. Well, that's not where I want to be. Years ago, um, I was invited to a, an event and um, after a little bit, the tray came around with uh, shots of whiskey or whatever it was, and uh, they said, uh, we're going we're gonna to do it upright this afternoon. And uh, I said, well, no, I'm not. And it seemed to cast a pall on the whole event that uh, others started turning down the shots of whiskey as well and uh, really threw a blanket on the party. But uh, hey, uh, that's not where I want to be. That's, uh, I want to be separate from that. If uh, drinking is, um, is expected, I don't go. There's another promise in verse 18. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Quoted perhaps from 2 Samuel 7:14, the Lord expressing his tender regard for Solomon. He seems to be saying to Solomon, I have spoken openly to you. My heart is wide open. He wanted to be a father to Solomon. He wanted that closeness of relationship. And God's spirit is penning these words, applying them, applying this promise to the Corinthians. He wants to be, uh, he wants to be father. He wants to be that, uh, that, have that close communion. Then for application, we see in chapter 7, verse 1, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. How do I respond to God's longing, to God's desire to bless? Bless. 
the, um, the assembly. Well, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness. Of the flesh includes all forms of physical impurity. Of the spirit covers my inward life, my motives, my thoughts. And then Paul says, perfecting the uh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's a, it's a noble aspiration, it's a necessary aspiration that we, uh, we strive to, to mature, to perfect the holiness of God in our own lives. Paul chose the word fear, um, the fear of God. There are two, uh, two words, one for reverence, for a um, reverential fear, and that's, that's what people usually say, oh yes, that means to reverence the Lord. But... Um, that's not the word that Paul chose. He chose the word for being scared. He said, um, you be scared of, the, um, uh, of God. And by this, I don't think that, God, that Paul meant to be terrified by thoughts of any harshness or unreasonableness of God toward his children, but to be genuinely fearful of disappointing him, of failing him, in our thoughts, our life, our motives, and of abusing his grace. We want to, um, we want to honor him, delight him. I'll ask um, Don if we'll sing this song in closing, but um, uh, listen to the words. I am the Lord's, yet teach me all it meaneth. All it involves of love and loyalty, of holy service, absolute surrender, and unreserved obedience unto thee. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel at your desire for fellowship with us, communion with us, and how, um, uh, how you tell us to be separate from unbelievers. The, um, the tremendous benefit there is that we know you intimately as Father, and uh, we, share, um, we share your guidance, your love. We, um, we pray that as we go through the week that we might choose um, to separate ourselves from iniquity, from impurity, and that we might prize your uh, unbroken communion. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.